Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Anup Malani, who is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School and Medical School. He is also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, a senior fellow at the Schaefer Center, and an editor at the Journal of Law and Economics. Welcome, Anup. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, I, I want to um, go into details of what's happening in India, especially the second wave and associated difficulties there. But I want to start with a larger question, which is um, a pandemic, you know, I obviously don't know a lot about pandemic, but if, if I were given this sort of a mathematical problem, I would have thought that it's very difficult to solve this problem in 200, we have approximately 200 different countries, 8.3 billion people. If we try to solve this in 200 different policies and 200 different segments in an interconnected economy, I would have thought that our chance of success is pretty low. Uh, I just want to get your insights on it you know, from a policy perspective. Are you thinking about uh, India as the context of the world? Because they're cool. I, I, I'm thinking about the world, you know, so it is a worldwide problem, but we seem to have tackled it in, uh, you know, sort of a country by country basis. So this is an age old problem uh, with a twist uh, because infections spread across borders. But when I say it's an age old problem, uh, if you look at the U.S. Constitution, uh, the U.S. Constitution uh, embeds in it and we teach this when we teach constitutional law, embeds in it uh, a balance between central power and decentralized power. Some powers are vested to the national government in Article One, and some powers are reserved to the states uh, implicitly by not being included in Article One. And the idea here is that uh, there are merits to centralized and to decentralized decision-making. With centralized decision-making, uh, it's good for things where, or, or for, for problems where we're all in the same boat. When I say we here, I mean the U.S. states. Uh, decentralized is good uh, if you want to achieve one of two things. 
Uh, a, uh, people have different values or goals in different parts of the country, a country like the United States or uh, a country like India, and certainly the whole globe, you know, different areas have different goals. So that's one benefit of decentralized decision making. A second benefit of decentralized decision making is uh, sometimes goes under the banner of uh, 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 laboratories for experiment. And the idea here is sometimes when we, we face a problem, we don't know the answer. Uh, but we want to try out a bunch of different solutions. And so we let a number of decentralized entities, states, try different things, and whichever works the best uh, spreads, okay? Yeah. We, people copy them. Uh, so we think of, you know, classic examples of this, things like California's environmental laws, uh, or we think of certain types of uh, 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 financial regulations coming out of New York and, ironically, some Midwestern states historically. Um so that's those are the two those are the three overall goals. There's a central goal when we're all in the same boat, and then two uh, values of decentralization. And as it turns out, COVID hits a little bit of everything. So I think what you were hinting at is, you know, infection spread. So in some sense, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, different parts of the world or different parts of different states within different countries want to strike different balances when it comes to stopping the epidemic versus allowing businesses to go. Um, and it's also the case that we didn't actually know how to tackle the epidemic. So I think early on, uh, some people thought testing. I still think testing. Some people thought NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Those are those are controversial because they yeah. can have side effects. Uh, and then later on, there's a question of uh, of you know what is the order in which people should be vaccinated or how much should you vaccinate? Uh, how many doses should you buy? And and we also saw over the course of the last year. A lot of people make the argument that many national leaders, and I won't name names, but uh, I'm sure everyone in the audience can figure <laughs> out their favorite national leader yeah. uh, as an example, uh, that didn't do well. So those are arguments for why centralization are problematic, even though this is an infectious disease. If you end up with a bad leader making bad decisions, um, you're going to multiply those errors uh, if everybody's doing the same thing. So that's an, a, an argument for decentralization. So, so to me, my main takeaway is I pull out from this and I say, in a world where we don't actually know the answers, and I still think that we don't know the full answers to COVID. Uh, some yeah. people try to claim we do. I don't think we do. I think I like a decentralized approach. Uh, and I understand that um, there are going to be these externalities where, where places that do poorly are going to spread the infection to everywhere else. Um, but fortunately, we have something like a vaccine. We have several vaccines uh, that can even protect the uh, the places that uh, uh, that did the right thing, the vaccinated early uh, from uh, the spread of, of of COVID from places that didn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, so the thought experiment I was running on is that in a in a very connected system, and we have two types of connectivity here. One is travel. We are not in 1918 anymore. So you can have feel-good policies uh, about travel restriction, but if you say, well, the citizens can come back from anywhere in the world to that country X, um, you know, I, I would characterize that sort of a feel-good policy. You, you know, if you if you completely seclude um, a country, that's one thing. But if you have sort of ad hoc policies, yeah, it is still a fairly connected system from a travel perspective. And the other connectivity we have is the economic connectivity, which is a country cannot shut itself down from the rest of the world 
we have global supply chains, we have multinationals that connect all the countries together. So the thought experiment I was running, I know I don't have an answer to this, is that a country by country policy, a decentralized decision making regime, is it really practical in 2020 anymore? I don't have an answer to that. So I agree with you, everything's interconnected. You make a very important point about even if you wanted to close your borders to travelers like tourists, you know, you still need supply chains uh, to operate. So there's going to be some interaction and it's very hard to prevent contact uh, in that manner. Uh, and we haven't even talked about repatriation of your own citizens, which is a challenge. Yeah, so I agree there's interconnectivity. Connecting it to what we talked about earlier, I would say there may be an argument for decentralization, even in the context where you can't do that. That is to say, you cannot isolate yourself from the world. That's my first point. Yeah. Second is I found something very interesting about this, which is um, I think the thing that that, that confounded people was uh, uh, a profound loss of sovereignty. And I mean profound loss of sovereignty in the following sense. You know, you're a country like New Zealand or you're a country like Australia. You lock off from the world and those countries can. The problem is that that's not a that's not a full solution. Because if a vaccine doesn't come, or if a vaccine comes, but you can't get adequate supply of it, then you've got to stay fully locked down yeah. in an autarkic state until the world solves this problem, or you are able to get fully vaccinated. And that's not feasible. Right. And we've seen repeatedly, it, it's kind of the analogy I would use is trying to hold your breath underwater. <laughs> Good, but you got to come up for air at some point. And so you found that societies that locked down very effectively early on when they did come up for air without being fully vaccinated, they had outbreaks. So you had outbreaks in Taiwan, there are outbreaks in China. And so that's the real concern about locking up. Now, I wanna bring this back to a profound uh, loss of sovereignty. What I mean is once you acknowledge that there's no way to stay fully isolated uh, it, it, until everybody's vaccinated, um, what that means is that your uh, success really depends on the success of other countries in their ability to control the vaccine, uh, control the uh, virus or get vaccinated. Um, yeah. And so then if you're New Zealand, if you're Australia, if you're uh, China, if you're Taiwan, to some extent, you depend on how well India does, and yeah. how well Brazil does. Uh, and so you don't have a full control. You don't have as complete control as you'd like over your public's health. Um, the solution to that, by the way, was the vaccine. But again, everybody thought that I, first of all, I think everybody agrees that it was a miracle that we did this in a year. We were able to develop vaccines. That, that is just an amazing testament to human uh, ingenuity. But then, you know, you still have to uh, produce it and then you have to distribute it. You know, there are three legs to this stool and those two are taking a long time and will take a long time. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, Anub. Um, and, and so secluded policies, uh, when we talked about this uh, almost a year ago now, uh, when things were <laughs> not this bad, uh, we had talked a little bit about sort of dynamic policies and, and optimization, just going to the extremes may not be optimum. Um, but the other point that you're making in terms of uh, R&D and production so again, you know, if you were an extraterrestrial given this problem 18 months ago and assigned some probabilities, uh, one would have assigned high probability that something emerging in the U.S. because of the pharmaceutical R&D we have in the U.S. 
But uh, discovering something is just the first step. What we don't have is distributed production. So it doesn't look like the world is set up to tackle pandemics. And this may not be the last pandemic that we tackle, right? So from, a, from an infrastructure perspective, from a manufacturing production distribution perspective, what, what, do, you think, um, what do you think we should do looking forward? Um, I think it's very important that we uh, invest in decentralized global production capacity, J just working your way backwards to some extent uh, uh, up to the innovation. So we need a worldwide uh, production capacity. And the reason for that is we've observed uh, shortages. Shortages are partly due to the fact that uh, a lot of countries didn't have foresight. A lot of it, a portion of it is due to the fact that certain critical inputs were uh, you know, under the control of or, or, or subject to the obstruction of certain countries. Uh, and we also saw a lot of vaccine nationalism get in the way. Yeah. And um, you know, if you uh, care about the welfare of the entire globe, I think it's important to make it so that at no point do, do politics, do nationalism, uh, these sorts of things get in the way of being able to solve um, pandemics. So that's the first thing decentralized production capacity spread around the world uh, with redundancies. Um, number two, I think what's critical, which it, you, you have to do in every single country, is that we really have to set up adult vaccination infrastructure that is able to operate quickly and efficiently. We don't have that. Uh, a lot of countries have, for example, child vaccination, because that's what we typically give, but yeah. they don't have adult vaccination. U.S. and Europe and places like Japan might have adult vaccination because they do flu, uh, but a lot of other places don't. Um, and that's going to be critical going forward, especially because, uh, you know, there's a chance. I think people are beginning to realize maybe there's a chance that we're going to have to repeatedly vaccinate for COVID yeah. uh, as, as the strains evolve. Uh, you know, the way that I think about this is, you know, look at 1968 when H3N2 comes along the first time around. Uh, it's, it's not as bad as COVID, but it's bad. Uh, and then after a while, it becomes clear that we're going to have to vaccinate over and over again. And it took a long time to set up this sort of infrastructure. But now we do it every year in the U.S. and Europe. You're getting a, a new vaccine. I think we may need something like that for COVID potentially going forward. And, and so we'd want to have that infrastructure in place, not just for a one time vaccination, but for repeat vaccination across the world. Um, and even if you don't think COVID is the reason to do it or a new pandemic, you really should do it because of mRNA vaccines. They have the potential to solve a whole range of diseases. Yeah. Uh, and we want everybody in the world to be able to enjoy those benefits, not just developed countries. Um, so we need to build this infrastructure. So those are the two things that I would do that on the innovation front. Um, and and I, let me pause here, but I, I'd be happy to talk about the innovation front. Should, should we be happy or satisfied if the innovation is done in developed country, yeah, in developed countries, I, I don't think so. But but let me pause and let you. Uh, uh, yeah, that that's. Uh, I wasn't uh, going in that direction, but I want to get your perspective. I know. So, you know, what one one could ask: Why is innovation largely in the developed countries? And from an intellectual property property rights perspective, one could argue, innovation happens. In, in areas where you have well-defined property rights and well-defined intellectual property rights. 
And so in some sense, it's a regime policy question. I think India is a good example of this. Um, India and China both, um, you know, uh, let me make a statement. And if you disagree with it, uh, we can we can talk about it. I think both of these countries are very good at, um, at taking something and, and, and really replicating that. But neither have shown very high levels of innovation, probably because the, they don't really have very good um, intellectual property uh, rights regime. What do you think? Uh, so I agree with you. This is an area in which I've written, actually. Um, uh, so I agree with you that intellectual property is critical. Uh, I'll make one comment on that specific point and then make a broader comment about medical research. Um, in India, uh, there's this sense that India is good at making generics and the obstacle to making generics is getting access to the intellectual property rights required. And that means getting access to, to the intellectual property earlier, earlier than say patent expiration uh, for a new uh, branded drug. And I think that's fine, but that's a very uh, old school view of what India's capacity is. Yeah. If you, for example, think, well, well, India is producing a lot of the scientists that are that are that are starting biotech companies and, and non-biotech companies in the U.S. and maybe to some extent Europe and certainly in in East Asia. There's no reason why they couldn't do it in India. We certainly have the capacity to see uh, to have that innovation occur in India. You have to then start saying, well, maybe we need to shift instead of wanting to reduce intellectual property so we can produce what other people create. Maybe we ought to think about creating ourselves. And I do believe that there are companies in India ready in India ready to do that. And India has the human capital to be an innovator, but it requires a mindset change about who you are. Uh, and in the short run, it's going to affect the 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 generics companies to some extent. Although ironically, it could be the generics that are in the best position to do some of the innovation, uh, as I'll get to in a second. Yeah, so I, I yeah. don't know. Just the just the mindset change, though, Anub. I think. Uh, I agree with you that India has a human capital, uh, but but I see this as sort of a a, a a policy problem, which is if you have a country that doesn't uh, grant intellectual property rights as we imagine in developed countries, um, you have some tactical benefits but it's going to come back and bite you. I think that is what happened in some extent to India. Yeah, I agree with that. But although I think, and again, you know, you, you may be a more astute observer of this than I am uh, of the of the of the policy dynamic in India. But my takeaway has been uh, over time, there's been increasing support for intellectual property protection within India, yeah. uh, driven by business. Uh, as they come to become aware that they are capable of innovating and have their own ideas that they want to protect against foreign uh, 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 copy uh, cats. Um, but the, the thing that slows it is that uh, IP is not a popular campaign slogan. Uh, <laughs> it's populist opposition. And uh, in particular, India has a kind of leftist populist bent uh, yeah. is particularly opposed to property rights generally, whether it's intellectual or any other. Um, and I believe that that's a huge obstacle to India's economic growth, uh, including uh, um, in medical R&D. Um, but, but that's why I say that I, I view this as a, 
to some extent as a, uh, a mindset. We really need to, to if, if the Indian population and thus Indian politicians viewed Indians as, you know, taking pride in their economic success, um, uh, I, I think that, that that sort of mindset change would help shift the dialogue. So it wasn't, you know, the kind of leftist populist, but more, you know, economically nationalist. I, I don't want to use the word nationalist, but economically proud. Right. Um, then I think you could see IP laws that are stricter and you you turn out Indian wealth would rise. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. So so to some extent, I know it's happening to the U.S. too. Um, so the latest symptom of this is um, U.S. politicians saying the patents for the vaccines should be um, essentially invalidated, <laughs> uh, uh, where you know Germany and others objected objected to it, and uh, you know the, the the simple question there is if you if Pfizer invested half a billion dollars of shareholder capital into making an at risk product, and post. Um, development, you say, well, you know, we are in a bad state, let's just invalidate it. Who's going to do it next time? Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, uh, I, I, uh, I found it uh, disconcerting that the U.S. took its most successful response uh, to the pandemic and then vilified it. Um, and, and uh, you know, if I'm hoping that this is just kind of one of those temporary uh, appease your base type moves uh, that we occasionally see uh, by administrations, um, but doesn't become serious because if it becomes serious, I, I think you know the next pandemic we're going to be uh, the new EU, and uh, you know Germany or Japan or some other country will be the next US. They will have created the vaccine. They will have made advanced purchase commitments so that there's production capacity built out. They will be the first to vaccinate their populations and companies will be reticent to, to do this in the United States because the United States is willing to trade away their patent rights. Um, it's also going to be sad because we'll see the consequence of this beyond COVID or other pandemics. Uh, you know, we need to really double down on mRNA to solve a range of uh, diseases. Uh, you know, potentially HIV, uh, faster flu vaccines, you know, left, left and right, you can see examples of use. The amount of excitement I see among medical researchers is palpable. Um, but you won't see that if you if we if we begin to take seriously this, uh, this limitation of patents. I know everybody likes to, to, to rag on drug companies. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, drug companies really performed this pandemic. And I think there's an argument to be made that like, if we look at medical price inflation, uh, uh, drugs are not the not the enemy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, drug. You know, is, this is kind of the misperception, but that that would be on a tangent. The the the, the pharmaceutical cost of the four trillion that we are spending, it's five to seven percent. Yeah. Um, and if you can avoid a hospital day, hospital stay, by taking a pill at home. Uh, it's significant economic benefit to society, um, but but I want I want to I want to go to India. So I, I know that you 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 have been doing a lot of work in India. Um, I uh, I don't want to get any pol uh, political here. I know, but 
do you think the government of india has done a good job <laughs> uh uh gil it's a very good question uh and i want to see if it's possible for me to do two things the first is um uh return to a question that you asked earlier that we incompletely answered yeah. uh which is on medical r&d and second is uh buy myself some time to answer that question in the most politic way possible <laughs> <laughs> is, is that okay <laughs> sure absolutely okay so there's one other thing i wanted to mention about medical r&d uh so most people think medical r&d is mainly about uh you know coming up with a new molecule or in this context uh you know a new vaccine that's uh, a new technology it's not a molecule but uh uh using uh, mrna technology to to devise a new vaccine and you do that in the lab and then and then you're mainly done and if that were so we would have done the vaccine you know within a few days we would have had this vaccine uh in, yeah. in april may but the reality is um we need to do clinical testing we need to test this in humans uh and so there's and and that's a big driver of costs both because trials are directly expensive but also because trials take a long time so you lose a lot of uh 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 time value of money yeah uh okay so i roughly think that you know half half of the cost is in each of those maybe a little bit more for the clinical testing mm -hmm. but the type of technology you need for these uh differs so when we think about medical r&d we say which countries can do it we typically think about that first portion who can do the lab science Yeah. The lab science we think oh it gets done in the US or done in Europe or Japan they've got faster they've got they've got a better uh, uh scientists or better scientific establishment. That's true but that's changing and changing quickly. But that's still substantially true. But the second part of that clinical testing there's no reason why it can't be done anywhere in the world. Uh you know you could have tested covid patients in India, Brazil, South Africa, China the United States anywhere those clinical trials could have been done and some of them were actually done in multiple places um and that's a place where india even if it didn't have a great scientific establishment and it has a reasonably good scientific establishment to be clear can compete in but what's very interesting is that countries have uh just in that clinical trial component have done two things on the one hand uh countries that could be producing clinical trial data like india and the like strangely try to limit the amount of clinical trials on the population for nationalist reasons they say oh, we don't want foreign drug companies coming in doing this clinical testing yeah but by doing so they're actually stopping their own production of r&d instead what they should say is look we have a population that's capable of producing clinical trial data that's a form of innovation let's specialize in this and figure out how do we protect our population at the same time produce a lot of clinical trials and very quickly okay Yeah. Um and so India shut itself off and other countries do this too for for I think uh ethical reasons that aren't thinking about production of R&D. Then the other thing that happens is that you have uh not just export restrictions by countries like India you have import restrictions by the United States where we say look if you want to get approval for a a, a covid vaccine you got to do the trials in the US. We won't accept the, even the UK data. And again that's really hard to explain. uh um you want to be able to get these this r&d done as quickly as possible you know nobody sits there and says oh i you know i don't want the iphone because the parts are produced in china uh i just want the iphone so if you want a vaccine you should be okay if part of the r&d is done abroad in the form of clinical trials uh yeah. and the reality is humans are very very similar more similar than they are different 
Uh, and so for most things, it really doesn't matter that it was done abroad. Um, yeah, I have a I have a sort of a instinctual reaction to it, Anoop. I just want to um, get your perspective on this. So, so, so I have no conflicts of interest, uh, even though I worked at Pfizer a long time ago. Uh, and one of the reasons the pharmaceutical industry and the FDA require some of this data uh, to be created in the U.S. is that we have had horrible experiences outside the U.S. from from clinical trials data, and so it's more of a risk management instinct rather than a policy issue. Um, and so. So the, the, the question will be, how do we sort of, you know, minimize this? Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have 1.4 billion people in India. And if you, if you really tell, you know, think about clinical trials design, you have a higher chance of finding uh, a population who are less susceptible to previous chemicals, uh, or previous um, exposure that might uh, feed into the clinical trials data in India, right? And so you have a population that is that is really good for a clinical trials perspective. But two factors uh, compete there. One is, as you say, sort of the, um, the Indian government's policy, which is, you know, the Westerners are testing stuff on us and we don't want that. That is, that is sort of an, that's sort of ignorance that could be um, that could be changed, uh, and from a from a Western perspective, I think we are attaching too much importance to previous bad experiences. So we have to get over that too. So two things have to come together. Yeah, I agree with you. I actually think that uh, um, while there is legitimate concern about the quality of clinical trial data that comes from foreign clinical trials. Um, a, we make too much of it. For example, we were reticent to accept UK data yeah. uh, for US uh, approval. That's uh, silly. They have relatively good, maybe higher quality in some cases, clinical trials. And then B, if that's the strategy you're going to take, you're never going to invest to make the foreign trials in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America better. Uh, you need to go through some period of learning. Um, and it could be what you say is that the value of those data is a little bit lower, but we like it and we want you to meet certain standards. And we do this for, for generic production. The FDA goes out and sends manufacturing ex, uh, inspectors to, uh, to generic plants around the yeah. world. Maybe they should do it more, but they do do that. And you could imagine the same sort of infrastructure gets developed by the FDA to check to make sure that CROs, clinical uh, trial organizations or research organizations, are doing a good job in their clinical trials, uh, no matter where in the world they're running. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you, Anup. There's a bit of an academic bias here too, I think. Um, uh, because most of the R&D in, in life sciences, well, I shouldn't say most, but a very high percentage of it is done in the US. I think academic institutions sort of, you know, take the easy way out uh, from experimentation, you know, from proving a hypothesis. But as you say, I think in the long run, that's going to come back and bite us. And this this uh, pandemic is a good example of that. Yeah, I think what you just said is 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 spot on and a bit subversive. So I like it. 
Interestingly, uh, academia is both the source of arguments for uh, undermining intellectual property, yet it's the same sort of desire for academic credit that leads us to not want to have the research done abroad where we might not get the credit for it. Um, so I, I do think that we need to we need to globalize this sort of stuff. I'm I'm, I'm actually optimistic about all this. I, I do believe that um, you know we'll have some small fights about COVID, but I believe in the long run we'll begin to see the value of having global research, global supply chains, global distribution. Um, uh, I'm just generally optimistic that this is this is this is a crisis that we will learn from, uh, although it won't seem like it until we uh, we encounter the next one. Yeah, so I want to also ask you quickly about the WHO. So from my perspective, I know I haven't really studied it, uh, obviously, and you have done a lot of work in this area. From my perspective, it seems like we are lacking a, a, a global organization to tackle a pandemic, a global organization that has the resources, the power, the accountability. Uh, it is truly a global problem. Um, do you agree with that? Do we have? Do, do you think WHO is the right agency? Um, so one is I, I do believe it's a global problem. Second, I do not think that one single entity is the right approach to this problem. And the arguments for that I already gave when we talked about centralization versus decentralization. Yeah. If the WHO uh, made the wrong decision. Uh, you know, just imagine if it did what the U.S. did at the beginning, right? It initially says masks are not a good idea. Uh, you know, you would have a worldwide problem. Um, uh, and you don't want that. You want to have at least two or three different global organizations thinking about it. I Arguably, I, independently. I want them to, to independently look at the data and see what they get. Um, the third thing to remember about these international organizations is, is we have 200 governments in the world today, right, right. and we have sovereignty. Uh, there is no world government. And because of that, the WHO relies on the cooperation of each country to be able to get information from that country. Uh, I'm not naming names anymore, but if there's a country that has data that you need, uh, um, unless you make them happy, you might not get that data. Right. which means that you may not be able to critique that country. You may not be able to announce a policy that are, is contrary to the interest of that country. Uh, and so that's going to fundamentally compromise you. Uh, and that is not a fault of the international organization. Yeah, uh, It is a function of the world we live in. We have 200 nation states. And, and for, you know, when it generally comes to, to running the world, that doesn't seem like a bad system, actually. Uh, we've gotten quite far uh, uh, with a series of nation states, but this is one of the costs of having nation states. Um, so I wouldn't blame the WHO. Um, uh, it is in a bind. Um, the only other thing that I would add to this is that I, I worry that the WHO is too much of a public health organization. Hmm. And, and, and that's not the right way to deal with a public health problem because a public health problem involves people. Uh, yeah. and, and to understand people, you need to do more than understand diseases. You need to understand how humans behave. And public health folks are not particularly good at understanding, at least this is my personal uh, opinion. They haven't been great about understanding how humans behave. Uh, there's a tendency to believe that humans can't handle complicated information. They need to be told what to do. Um, they need to be given the message. Like it, it, it's, it goes back to this old uh, 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 Jack Nicholson line: uh, um, "You can't handle the truth." Uh, 
they sometimes act like that. And that's really problematic. And you've seen this in a few different public health crises and, and they've been given warnings. And, and this is not just one monolith. So uh, a number of folks in the internet, in the, even in the public health community are given this warning that says, look, if we keep on treating the population as um, not very smart as children yeah. uh, and we mislead them because we think it's in their interest for them to be misled, uh, once they figure it out, they're not gonna trust you. And right now I think public health faces a problem of trust. Now for the WHO, what that means is going forward um, to work as a public health organization, they need to be a little bit more sophisticated about human behavior. Uh, and that requires them to become a social science organization as well as a public health organization. And I think it's something that can be done, um, but we should have you know, a few of these organizations like WHO and ones that are multidisciplinary. Yeah, I agree. My, my, my naive perspective, Anub, is that we are not really organized to tackle systemic problems uh, to the planet, uh, it doesn't have to be a plan. It doesn't have to be a pandemic. We, you know, suppose we say there's an asteroid hit in Taiwan, and you say, "Well, that's Taiwan's problem." <laughs> you know, uh, it, we won't be able to tackle it, right? So it, it seems like we are lacking some basic um, defense mechanisms against systemic problems on the planet. Mm -hmm. I agree, uh, but you know, here's the thing. Humans are not computers. Uh, it's not even a single computer, to be quite honest. A single human isn't. We, uh, an individual learns through experience, uh, yeah. trial and error. Uh, and then if you compound that by saying there's going to be millions and billions of humans, uh, maybe organized into groups, you're going to have a, a very strange type of trial and error system. But um, in general, it's pushed us forward in the world. Uh, yeah. We've seen tremendous progress worldwide. Maybe we've gotten lucky, but maybe it's because we, we are capable of moving forward. Um, so, so yes, I, I believe that it would be nice to have a single omniscient uh, person or computer that can solve everything. We, we don't have that, but uh, 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 you know, our fallback is us. Um, right. Right. I think we'll do okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, we'll take a we'll take a quick break, Anu. When we come back, uh, I want to uh, um, dig a little deeper into the second wave that's happening in India. Yeah. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So, so Anub, uh, we are back. Uh, we were talking about the pandemic and the world's response to it, the right of policy choices, um, Sometimes it's difficult to handle things in segments as we appear to have done in this time around. Um, I want to talk a little bit um, more about or deeper uh, about what's happening in India. I know that your team has done a lot of work in India. About a year ago, we talked about sort of the healthcare systems, insurance policies and things like that in India. Yeah, they all have become relevant in the last 12 months, <laughs> more than we thought when I mean, we were talking about it. Um, so so we have the second wave. Um, so, so the first thing I want to ask you, 
when I when I analyze these numbers, um, there appears to be some problems with it. So the, the latest thing that I saw was about 35 million cases and a mortality rate, case mortality at about 1.2%. That is significantly lower than Western mortality of 1.8 or 1.9% case mortality. Um, and and you have done some work in Bangalore and Karnataka state. And uh, I remember you saying that those uh, those numbers may be uh, significantly underestimated. So what's our latest understanding of this? Okay, so uh, that's a great question. Um, you're asking, I think, about the um, infection fatality rate, although you said the case fatality rate. No, I, I meant the, the case fatality, because infection, maybe I don't understand this. So case fatality rate is uh, people die divided by the number of cases we know, right? Yeah. Whereas infection fatality rate is uh, people die divided by people who got infected. But the denominator of that, we don't really know, do we? Correct. So so, so the, the way that I uh, think about this is, is I think about a fraction. Uh, yeah. The fraction, the numerator is the number of deaths and the denominator, let's start out by, by, by studying the case fatality rate. The denominator yeah. would be the number of known cases. Now, the problem with that is that if you don't test very much, your yeah. denominator is going to be small, not because the number of cases is small, but because you're not testing very much. Okay. Right. Or you might test a lot, but have a, a bias towards only testing a certain type of people. Okay, the, the ones that, that are getting sick or something like that. Yeah. Uh, um, so that's going to be an important uh, thing that leads us to, uh, uh, or leads me to the conclusion that the case fatality rate is, is not very informative because it really depends on your testing policy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. And it's very hard to compare across countries. So if you have one country that does more systematic testing that includes people that are asymptomatic and not asymptomatic. Maybe they do more contact tracing rather than just testing at the hospital. And then you have another country that only tests people at the hospital. They could right. both have the same kind of number of deaths per actual cases that are severe, uh, but they're going to get totally different CFR estimates, case fatality rate estimates um, when they look at their statistics. And so I, I find that, the, that until you have a, a common testing policy, I have trouble comparing the case fatality rate. Now, people try to respond and they say, hold on a second. How about if I just look at the folks that show up at the hospital? How many hospital admissions do I have from COVID in the denominator? That is better. But the difficulty even with that is the following. Different countries and including different states within India have different hospital capacity levels per capita. Right. Uh, and so the threshold for setting somebody in varies even worse. In the middle of the of the height of the of the first or second wave, you had problems where hospitals were overwhelmed, and that meant that the threshold for admitting you went up. You had to have a more severe case before you could be admitted, uh, yeah. in, like say ICUs. Uh, and so um, we were holding the denominator to some extent constant, uh, even though the number of cases were multiplying, actual cases were multiplying. And in yeah. that context, you're you're going to get the wrong answer on on CFR. So that's why I've been, I've tried to stay away from CFR discussions to the extent possible. Yeah. I know doctors and physicians, they like it because that's something they see often, but their implicit assumption is they've diagnosed everything. Right. 
they also like it because it's what they see in the hospital. They're, you know, they're not roaming around the community doing tests on even asymptomatic people. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, that's why I think CFR was the thing that people looked to initially by doctors looked to. I don't think it's a, a very useful thing. I think. It, yeah. So th this makes a lot of sense to me. I know. So I've been struggling with, so I grew up in Southern state of uh, India called Kerala and uh, my parents still live there. So I talk to them quite often. And I was looking at the case uh, fatality rate, you know, um, Kerala against, uh, say, Andhra Pradesh or Maharashtra or Karnataka. Uh, it appears to be one third compared to those states. <laughs> I was hoping for some sort of a medical explanation, but the explanation might be that uh, Kerala has a higher denominator because of better testing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to if you want to drive down your CFR, test more. I mean, maybe that's a good incentive, but it's not giving you medically useful information. Yeah. So, so the the IFR, the infection fatality rate. How do so? How do we get to that? Um, so before before we go into the details of that, so this this idea of the second wave that appeared to be ten times the intensity of the first wave. What's our current hypothesis? I'm talking about India specifically. What's our current hypothesis why that happened? So in my analysis of the second wave, I've, I've come to two conclusions. And, and this is, uh, and I, I will tell you, this is not because, uh, you know, I've done extensive uh, sequencing and I've been on the ground. This is through uh, uh, deduction, uh, uh, kind of forensic statistics, so to speak. Yeah. I think there are causes. Number one, after the first wave, there was still a large population that remained susceptible, that wasn't yeah. infected. And I think that you can uh, um, isolate the, these groups. They have certain characteristics. So the first wave mostly struck individuals in cities more than rural areas, uh, although not a big difference between the two. Uh, you know, uh, serological tests suggest that they're only 10 percentage points higher uh, zero prevalence in cities than rural areas, but it was higher. So cities were hit more. And then within cities, uh, you can see that uh, poorer communities were hit far, far more. And this we've seen in, in serological studies that, that I've worked on, uh, the most notable one being Mumbai, where we saw uh, zero prevalence, antibody prevalence in 55% of uh, slum residents. Uh, yeah. but only 15, 1.5% of non-slum residents. So you okay. basically see poor individuals in cities being hit the hardest, okay? Hmm. Now, um, the, the remainder of the population uh, was much more uh, unaffected, much more likely to be susceptible. Um, yeah. And so when the, when the second wave came along, they were the ones to be infected. That's explanation number one, and I'll give you some evidence supporting that in a second. The second yeah. uh, piece of information is that if you look at the height, the 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 the, the uh, yeah the height of the second wave versus the first wave, I don't think the difference is that the first wave infected fewer people. I think that if you look at the first wave, it rose more slowly and declined more slowly relative to the first yeah. to the second wave. The second wave skyrocketed. It was like a rocket ship. Right. Um, and I don't know if more people are infected. It could be about the same, but but certainly the amplitude was much much bigger in the so second. It's wave. a it's an area under the curve that yeah. we need to compare. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And we don't know that yet because the second wave is not over uh, right. completely. Uh, but but I wouldn't be surprised if it's about the same. Um, now, 
you cannot, it's very hard to explain why it rose that much more quickly. In, in fact, if you, before we, uh, we looked at the second wave, before you put that on a, on a graph, the first wave looks pretty ominous. It only looks mild once you put the second wave on there. And then all of a sudden you see the second wave is much higher, <laughs> shorter lived. Right. You have to ask yourself, well, how did, how come it spread more quickly, even though the population had more immunity already, or at least a portion did. Yeah. Um, and I think the answer has to be the new variants. And so I think that the, the one, two punch is the following. You had the 617 variants uh, yeah. coming out of India that were more transmissible, perhaps 60% uh, more transmissible than the original variants. This is a Delta variant, as I say. Yes, yeah. yes. And then um, they're 60% potentially up to 60% more transmissible. And uh, you had a large pocket of susceptibles. And so you can see this high, this very sharp rise when you have the greater transmissibility with the new variants. Um, and then if you go look and talk to people, who are the people that were infected in the second wave? Um, they were higher income individuals. Uh, so you saw, for example, the, a notable statistic coming out of Mumbai that people talk about is that 90% of the cases were non-slums. Uh, and that gives you a sense of what was going on. Basically, uh, the high-income populations were more likely to be socially distanced, practicing masking, etc. cetera. Uh, that was great. They survived the first wave, but then when the second wave came along, even they weren't secure. Uh, it could be that they relaxed their behavior a little bit uh, over time, but then they got hit pretty, pretty hard. And, and, and it's an unpopular thing to say, but I think one of the reasons why, like it, this is, an, I'm going to give you two indirect pieces of evidence suggesting that high income individuals are hit by the second wave more than the first wave. And again, this is all indirect. The, the first is you heard it about it, heard about it in the American press much more quickly, right? The first wave you heard about, but you didn't hear about it a lot. And I think part of that reason is because low income individuals in India don't have a lot of voice. They're not talking to the New York Times. <laughs> Whereas if you take high income individuals, they are talking to the New York Times. They have relatives in the United States that are also probably going to be high income. And those individuals are professional and many of them are going to be journalists or no journalists. They had much quicker voice. Hmm. Uh, so that's one. The second thing is that when we were looking at economic data, uh, looking at data on incomes from the Center for Monitoring Indian Economies Consumer Pyramids Household Survey, we noticed something very interesting. Incomes for all income quartiles fell uh, during lockdown. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, but interestingly, those that came from the highest income households, the highest quartile income households, those individuals didn't return to work uh, after uh, the lockdown as quickly as low income individuals did. Let me restate that. Low, high income individuals stayed away from work for longer than low income individuals did. Yeah. And what that could signal is, and it was very interesting because it suggests that in, if anything, the lockdown had a, had a kind of a, a progressive effect because it actually reduced the income inequality that we saw, but it also relevant to the second wave indicated that people stayed away from each other a little bit more. Otherwise they would earn the higher income. Uh, or they would, their income would return. So, so that was the other piece of data I had that suggests to me that uh, the the composition of who is infected in this wave is different than in the first wave. So it's a combination of pocket of susceptibles, and in this case, high income, uh, and new variants that drove uh, the second wave. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so my mind is spinning. Uh, I know. So, uh, I want to go back to sort of the first thing, which is. So we see a differential in antibody 
tests between the slums of Mumbai and the suburbs of Mumbai, let's, let's call it, 55 to 15 in the first wave. Now, that could be due to two things, right? It could be due to the fact that um, COVID-19 spread in the slums a lot faster and then created antibodies. It could also be due to the fact that maybe in the slums they have had uh, previous infections that gave them the antibodies. Do we have any sense of why that's the case? Yeah, so that's a that's a that's a, a reasonable hypothesis. Uh, and um, uh, the Mumbai study, when it was originally published, actually, you know, one could make the argument that it had this weakness. Uh, the study used a CLIA test. Uh, looked uh, that targeted the nucleocapsid, okay, uh, yeah. in the in the virus. And um, it, again, this is getting kind of deep into to, to the testing. But there are two potential targets that you can search for when you look for antibodies. Um, you could look for the nucleocapsid or the spike protein. Okay. okay? Now uh, we generally like to look for the spike protein because there's this sense that the uh, that SARS-CoV-2, that its spike is different than other coronaviruses, whereas, whereas its nucleocapsid is not as different. Yeah. And what that means is that if you do a test for nucleocapsid, maybe what you're picking up is antibodies to the prior coronaviruses, okay, that are endemic uh, to India. Yeah. Now, um, there are two responses to that. Three, actually. The first one is the tests on which, uh, the, the sorry, the, 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 the lab studies uh, that were done to validate these tests suggests that they are still specific. That is to say, the CLIA for nucleocapsid is still specific, uh, and the way they do that is they check to see if it if it turns on gen generates false positives uh, when you have negative samples. Okay, so uh, uh, presumably some of those negative samples might have previously been infected with other coronaviruses, and they didn't light up the test. So so that's the first argument. The lab test suggests that it's specific. A second argument is the following. Even if it was not specific, the only way it would go off is if that individual happened to have a non-COVID coronavirus recently, and so their antibodies were in their system. Yeah. And, and that's not obviously going to be the case because we know, and we know this in coronaviruses, that antibodies, once you clear an infection, an antibody leaves the system. And so the probability that they were infected with a non-COVID coronavirus just you know, in the last few months before our tests is low. They might have been infected in the year before or five years before, but then we wouldn't have seen the antibodies. So there's a sort of timing effect. I don't know anything about this, Anup. So the, the T cell defense, um, I, I understood that as more long term, but that is not that is not the case here. No, no, no. I want to separate out three things. Yeah. So first is you can test to see if the virus is in your body. That's RT-PCR, for example, tests. Yeah. The second thing you can do is test to see if you've got an antibody response. So we yeah. call them serological tests, but they're, they're tests to see antibody prevalence. Antibodies, depending on the type, don't stay in your system for a long period of time. They, they show up to be able to battle the virus when you get it. And then once you're done when you're, and your body wins, um, over time, the antibodies get cleared. Uh, yeah. They're proteins. They're costly to produce. Uh, your body does, just doesn't need a lot of antibodies floating around. They, they, they're broken down and they go away. Uh, and there's a there's a debate, a discussion about how long it takes for them to clear. Uh, you know, some people say as short as three months. Some people say as long as a year, uh, mm -hmm. but they do clear. And then after they clear, you still have immunity. This is something that people misperceive. They think 
and not you, but but you know, I've heard this in, yeah, yeah. in popular discussions. Hey, if I don't have antibodies, do I no longer have immunity? The answer is no, because your body, after it clears the antibodies, um, memorizes which antibodies it needs yeah. uh, to be able to counter the infection. And they does that through something called cellular immunity, particular T cells and B cells. They memorize what antibodies to be produced when they see this particular virus, uh, and they just keep a memory of it, but you don't have the antibodies in your blood. So that's cellular immunity. Yeah. That lasts, that can last a very long time, uh, but that too over time will, will uh, go away as it's not efficient for your body to remember very, very old viruses <laughs> that don't keep coming back. It's just a waste yeah. of memory in some sense. So, so, so the, the T cell memory is sort of a, a heuristic, a template for manufacturing um, uh, of a defense of an antibody, whereas the antibodies themselves are chemicals that get cleared. So, so you have some sort of a heuristic developed in the body. So going back to the Mumbai um, observation, um, so, so it seems like we have clear evidence that the, the, the high antibodies that we measured there is related to uh, recent infections, if not COVID. Uh, yes, uh, it is related to recent infection. I would argue that it's probably COVID. There was a, one more argument I wanted to make for why it's COVID. We took a random subsample of, yeah. the, of the blood samples, and we did another round of testing, but we did it with both ELISA and neutralizing antibodies. So ELISA, our ELISA test was checking for antibodies to the spike protein, and our neutralizing antibodies were doing the same and were even stronger tests. And those generally validate the results that we found uh, in the first round, which is to say higher rates, sorry, in the first round tests, which is higher rates of uh, antibodies, higher seroprevalence among slums than in non-slums. So so that is the case. But but now I want to get back to your question, but if you yeah. don't mind, I'll ask you to repeat it. No, no. So, so I was just, uh, no, no. So I get that now. So, um, so, so I was going back to, you know, it's a country based on a class system. If I understand this, this, this data, it seems to me that the poor and the, the poor and, and those with low connections, um, maybe the inability to stay away got the first wave and the opposite of that, um, did not get the first wave. And then it seems like it's reversing now because uh, those who got the first wave got immunity and, and now the second wave is affecting those who escaped the first one. Is that the way to think about it? It is. And, and a, an interesting way to think about it even further, uh, although exactly what you said is what you said is exactly right. And a, another way to think about it is everybody that was infected in the first wave yeah. got their first dose of vaccine. Yeah. Uh, and the people that were not infected in the first wave, those guys were susceptible. They, it's like they were unvaccinated. And so when you entered this, this, the second wave, when it started, you know, it, I automatically, you know, my first thought was immunity is doing some work here. Uh, <laughs> because if immunity wasn't working, if you didn't have some degree of at least medium term protection, you would find the same level, the, the same incidence that you did the first time. Uh, you would have found that low-income individuals in urban settings would have been a lot of the cases in part because they live in such crowded conditions. You know, in slums, you're sharing toilets and water taps and things like that. All the things that cause infection to spread generally cause COVID to spread. 
the fact that those individuals weren't dominating the cases tells me that immunity, natural immunity helps. And uh, to the extent that vaccine acquired immunity mimics natural immunity, that's a good sign. Yeah. Uh, this is not a political statement, but uh, just mathematically, it appears that the waves are creeping up in some sense of the cost system. So do you see a third wave that might affect sort of a super, super class or super rich? That's a very interesting question. I've heard two hypotheses. Uh, one is what you just said. And then the other one is the children are going to be affected. And the, the short answer is, I don't know. Uh, but I, we can find out the answer very easily. <laughs> and the way to find out the answer very easily is to do serological testing. Yeah. That's not a complete answer, but but what, you know, if you're at war, and here we're at war, uh, um, my friend Alex Tabarrok likes to use this analogy, we should think of us as, as waging a war against the virus. Um, if we were waging a war, an ordinary you know, uh, guns uh, war, uh, we would certainly want to do get intelligence, right? Where is the enemy coming from, uh, and and what are weak points in defense? Um, we should be doing the same thing with testing, it, it, and surprisingly, we're not. Even to this day, we should be doing population level serological testing repeatedly, every two weeks, every month around the country, and it's very very cheap to do. India has the lab capacity to do it, and we should be doing it. That would be able to answer the question you just asked. I would look for two things: a are the super wealthy still susceptible? And I don't mean like the, you know, the the, the billionaires. I just mean people even further up the income. Yeah, level. I mean that that is still fifty million. I know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then the second thing is, I would look to see if children uh, are still um, uh, susceptible by seeing if they've got antibodies. Uh, I can see why people are worried because they weren't affected in the first wave. They've been kept out of school. Maybe they haven't gotten infected. But look, we can we can figure it out. And the reason we should figure it out is we'll figure out if we need to protect these individuals. We'll learn a little bit about how the, uh, the virus works. And more importantly, a ton rides on the decision about children. If we think that children are vulnerable, I think you'll see movements to keep schools closed for another year. Mm. Whereas if they're not vulnerable, schools will be open. And if we act out of too much precaution, we'll keep them, we might keep them closed for no good reason. And that would have very big long-term economic and importantly health consequences uh, because education is a big driver both your long-term welfare and your health yeah so, so in conclusion Anub, i have two questions for you um so from a policy perspective what would you recommend for india today and you you talked about testing testing is, is certainly uh something that they have to do more of but but more broadly what would you do today and I think this is, at least from my perspective, this is a first iteration. So, what would you what would you say a country like India should do with COVID twenty twenty five come along? So, two questions. Okay, so for I, I want to separate out uh, near term what should, we should do for any future waves of COVID versus COVID twenty twenty five, which I think of as the next pandemic. <laughs> um, I'll try to address them in order. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing is we should figure out who remains susceptible. That requires yeah. serological testing, as I said. Um, I was hoping that by now, uh, serological testing would become so normal, I could instead tell you about how we need to improve serological testing, but we need to do that as well. So it's it's not enough to do what we've been doing so far, which is um, just see uh, you know what population level seroprevalence surveys say. 
Uh, but we need to be able to adjust these studies to account for the fact that antibodies decay over time. Um, yeah. and, and that requires us to go back to people who tested positive over the last nine months and see how much their antibodies decayed. So that's the first thing, a serological yeah. survey that also accounts for antibody decay. Yeah. Number two, uh, we need to figure out what's happening with sequence with, with, with these variants. Uh, I believe that we should, it doesn't require a lot, but we should uh, uh, every week uh, take, you know, a hundred or a thousand samples across the country that are positive, uh, geographically dispersed, sequence them, uh, and make that data available for everybody to analyze. The people that analyze this are not just in India, but around the world, and we need to make people aware of what's going on. Not just to find new variants, what we're really interested in beyond finding new variants is learning how fast this virus is moving through genetic space, because that tells us how far the next variant is gonna be from the original variants, mm. and thus how much cross-reactivity you're gonna get, how much protection you're going to get from the new against the new variant from having immunity to the old variant. The yeah. bigger that distance is, the less protection you'll get. So we need to know that. That's number two that I would do. Again, very easy to do. India has the capacity to it. It just requires a will. Um, number three, um, I believe that India needs to set up its vaccination system. It not only needs to vaccinate now as fast as possible, but it needs to set up a non-temporary adult vaccination system so it can go back out into the field. If we find out in one year, two years, three years uh, that this thing has really evolved so we don't have cross-reactivity, we're gonna need to give other rounds of vaccine. Hmm. Um, and the reality is it's gonna be much more quickly to develop mRNA vaccines uh, than typical uh, yeah. vaccines, inactivated or other methods. Um, and so we're gonna have to build a cold chain one of the best pieces of news we got recently was that, for example, Pfizer's doses don't need to be kept at low, as low a temperature. You don't need minus 80. Yeah. What that means is that it may become feasible for us in India to have a full distribution network with regular refrigerators that can handle mRNA vaccines potentially. Well, that'll make a big difference, yeah. A huge difference. Uh, and so we should do that. We should plan to be building out that infrastructure today. It's great because that can be a backbone to better healthcare infrastructure generally, but we should do that. And then the fourth thing I think we need to do is I think we need to get better, we need to get better data systems and more yeah. transparent data systems so that local actors can make better judgments about NPIs. I don't believe that a national lockdown is the answer. I think targeted lockdowns are the answer, if anything. Uh, it's not clear that that's enough, but but uh, but targeted lockdowns is, is what we should practice because they have big side effects. To do that, we have to make intelligent decisions and only do it where it's necessary. Um, I think that that's the other thing I would do is develop that data system, the transparency and, and, and a methodology for targeted lockdowns. We have great groups who are working in India. Sandeep Janeja is a great example that comes to mind, but there are many others that are thinking about, and we're doing this too, uh, and have been for the last year thinking about targeted lockdowns and understanding how they affect human behavior and the spread of infection. We should get better at that going forward. Yeah, so so we have learned a lot from this. So so, so if we look forward though, and you know, um, I'm, I'm thinking about the United Nations perspective. Uh, I keep thinking that, do we really have a, an organization, a system that can, you know, um, intervene in a systemic discontinuity for the world? And it doesn't seem like, I mean, we have the Security Council, they're still counting the ICBMs, you know. <laughs> I think we have moved 
quite a bit from that. So do we have sort of an archaic United Nations, you think? I do, but I don't think that there's an immediate solution. I mean, this is not a, you know, you used to have a League of Nations, it didn't work well, you could replace it with the UN. The UN is a series of organizations that handles a lot of international issues ranging from migration to food and agriculture to uh, uh, human rights to uh, refugee camps to COVID, right? Uh, through, I mean, it's not, it, WHO is a little different, but and that's fine. I think that's a good model. The, the thing that I worry about is these are entities that um, uh, don't have a lot of legitimacy in a lot of national governments. Yeah. Uh, and they don't have, uh, you know, they have their own problems uh, because uh, they don't have the right incentives sometimes uh, right. to do the right things, but, but that are critically necessary because you need to have coordination. So I, I would encourage these organizations. Again, I like the idea of multiple international organizations that are dealing with COVID so that none can be particularly captured or beholden and they they think independently. Yeah. Uh, but it's also very important to remember the following. There is a small, like take an epidemic like COVID. Uh, you know, if you worked in this world, it wouldn't take a long time to figure out who the big movers and shakers are. And they all know each other. Yeah. And, and that's great because when they know each other, they can and get international cooperation very quickly. They can get on the same page. But the flip side of that is, um, you're not going to get a lot of accountability because nobody wants to say, hey, that person could have acted quicker, quicker on NPIs or that person uh, should have said something else on masks. And so there's a there's a pro and a con to having this small community that runs the international organizations. Hmm. And we really need to uh, think about governance of those organizations if we, we want them to have legitimacy and accountability. Yeah. And, and, and resources and accountability, I think. Um... You know, if if one country is in a position to pull out the pull the rug out of an organization at the height of a crisis, that is that's a big problem. Correct. I and and I hadn't mentioned that, but that is a very important one. If there's a country that that offers a lot of the money, um, uh, they're going to be able to dictate terms, and they're going to the the organization is going to feel like they can't contravene that country, and and to be even more real politic about it. There are some countries that are more willing to use that power than other countries. Yeah. And the countries that are more willing to use that power uh, are the ones that get, um, uh, that get the most out of that power because uh, the international organization knows, you know, no amount of pushback is going to change their mind. <laughs> Whereas you take a country like the United States, you know, when it tries to push an international organization, there is a press there that is more than willing to talk about how a particular administration or politician uh, uh, played unfairly with the WHO. So in that sense, you know, uh, we, we have to understand that uh, some places are gonna get a lot more attention than others, but that's not always the best indicator of where you have good behavior or bad behavior. Yeah, we, we need some game theory uh, frameworks here, I know. Uh, yes. uh, so this has been great. Uh, I know, thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.